You are listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of The Defenders by Philip K. Dick. Part 2 of 2. Performed by Miranda Johnson and Ryan Johnson. If you enjoy this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. The ladies were going back and forth with equipment moving the vast stores of guns and spare parts, ammunition, and supplies that had been brought to the surface. And this was the receiving station for only one tube. There were many others, scattered throughout the continent. Taylor looked nervously around him. They were really there, above ground, on the surface. This was where the war was. Come on, Frank said. A B-class guard is coming our way. They stepped out of the car. Aledi was approaching them rapidly. It coasted up in front of them and stopped, scanning them with its hand weapon raised. This is security, Frank said. Have an A-class sent to me at once. The lady hesitated. Other B-class guards were coming, scooting across the floor, alert and alarmed. Moss peered around. Obey, Frank said in a loud, commanding voice. You've been ordered. The lady moved uncertainly away from them. At the end of the building, a door slid back. Two A-class ladies appeared, coming slowly towards them. Each had a green stripe across its front. From the surface council, Franks whispered tensely. This is above ground, all right. Get set. The two ladies approached warily. Without speaking, they stopped close by the men, looking them up and down. I'm Franks of security. We came from undersurface in order to... This is incredible. One of the ladies interrupted him coldly. You know you can't live up here. The whole surface is lethal to you. You can't possibly remain on the surface. These suits will protect us, Frank said. In any case, it's not your responsibility. What I want is an immediate council meeting, so I can acquaint myself with the conditions, with the situation here. Can that be arranged? You human beings can't survive up here. And the new Soviet attack is directed at this area. It is in considerable danger. We know that. Please assemble the council. Franks looked around him at the vast room, lit by recessed lamps in the ceiling. An uncertain quality came into his voice. Is it night or day right now? Night, one of the A-class ladies said, after a pause. Dawn is coming in about two hours. Franks nodded. We'll remain at least two hours then. As a concession to our sentimentality, would you please show us some place where we can observe the sun as it comes up? We would appreciate it. A stir went through the ladies. It is an unpleasant sight, one of the ladies said. You have seen the photographs. You know what you'll witness. Clouds of drifting particles blot out the light. Slag heaps are everywhere. The whole land is destroyed. For you, it will be a staggering sight, much worse than pictures and film can convey. However it may be, we'll stay long enough to see it. Will you give the order to the council? Come this way. Reluctantly, the two ladies coasted towards the wall of the warehouse. 
The men trudged after them, their heavy shoes ringing against the concrete. At the wall, the two ladies paused. This is the entrance to the council chamber. There are windows in the chamber room, but it is still dark outside, of course. You'll see nothing right now, but in two hours... Open the door, Frank said. The door slid back. They went slowly inside. The room was small, a neat room with a round table in the center, chairs ringing it. The three of them sat down silently, and the two ladies followed after them, taking their places. The other council members are on their way. They have already been notified and are coming as quickly as they can. Again, I urge you to go back down. The lady surveyed the three human beings. There is no way you can meet the conditions up here. Even we survive with some trouble ourselves. How can you expect to do it? The leader approached Franks. This astonishes and perplexes us, it said. Of course we must do what you tell us, but allow me to point out that if you remain here... We know, Franks said impatiently. However, we intend to remain at least until sunrise. If you insist. There was silence. The ladies seemed to be conferring with each other, although the three men heard no sound. For your own good, the leader said at last, you must go back down. We have discussed this, and it seems to us that you are doing the wrong thing for your own good. We are human beings, Frank said sharply. Don't you understand? We're men, not machines. That is precisely why you must go back. This room is radioactive. All surface areas are. We calculate that your suits will not protect you for over fifty more minutes. Therefore... The ladies moved abruptly towards the men, wheeling in a circle, forming a solid row. The men stood up. Taylor reaching awkwardly for his weapon, his fingers numb and stupid. The men stood facing the silent metal figures. We must insist, the leader said, his voice without emotion. We must take you back to the tube and send you down on the next car. I am sorry, but it is necessary. What'll we do? Moss said nervously to Franks. He touched his gun. Shall we blast him? Frank shook his head. All right, he said to the leader. We'll go back. He moved towards the door, motioning Taylor and Moss to follow him. They looked at him in surprise, but they came with him. The lady followed them out into the great warehouse. Slowly they moved towards the tube entrance, none of them speaking. At the lip, Franks turned. We're going back because we have no choice. There are three of us and about a dozen of you. However, if... Here comes the car, Taylor said. There was a grating sound from the tube. D-class leadies moved towards the edge to receive it. I am sorry, the leader said. But it is for your protection. We are watching over you, literally. You must stay below and let us conduct the war. In a sense, it has become our war. We must fight it 
as we see fit. The car rose to the surface. Twelve soldiers armed with bender pistols stepped from it and surrounded the three men. Moss breathed a sigh of relief. Well, this does change things. It came off just right. The leader moved back, away from the soldiers. It studied them intently, glancing from one to the next, apparently trying to make up its mind. At last, it made a sign to the other leadies. They coasted aside, and the corridor was opened up towards the warehouse. Even now, the leader said, we could send you back by force, but it is evident that this is not really an observation party at all. These soldiers show that you have much more in mind, that this was all carefully prepared. Very carefully, Frank said. They closed in. How much more, we can only guess. I must admit that we were taken, unprepared. We failed utterly to meet the situation. Now, force would be absurd, because neither side can afford to injure the other. We, because of the restrictions placed on us regarding human life. You, because the war demands... The soldiers fired, quick and in fright. Moss dropped to one knee, firing up. The leader dissolved in a cloud of particles. On all sides, D- and B-class leadies were rushing up, some with weapons, some with metal slats. The room was in confusion. Off in the distance, a siren was screaming. Franks and Taylor were cut off from the others, separated from the soldiers by a wall of metal bodies. They can't fire back, Franks said calmly. This is another bluff. They've tried to bluff us all the way. He fired into the face of a leady. The leady dissolved. They can only try to frighten us. Remember that. They went on firing, and leady after leady vanished. The room reeked with the smell of burning metal, the stink of fused plastic and steel. Taylor had been knocked down. He was struggling to find his gun, reaching wildly among metal legs groping frantically to find it. His fingers strained. A handle swam in front of him. Suddenly, something came down on his arm. A metal foot. He cried out. Then, it was over. The leadys were moving away, gathering off to one side. Only four of the surface council remained. The others were radioactive particles in the air. D-class leadys were already restoring order gathering up partly destroyed metal figures and bits and removing them. Franks breathed a shuddering sigh. All right, he said. You can take us back to the windows. It won't be long now. The leadys separated, and the human group, Moss and Franks and Taylor, and the soldiers, walked slowly across the room, towards the door. They entered the council chamber, Already a faint touch of gray mitigated the blackness of the windows. Take us outside, Frank said impatiently. We'll see it directly, not in here. The door slid open. A chill blast of cold morning air rushed in, chilling them even through their lead suits. The men glanced at each other uneasily. Come on, Frank said, 
Outside. He walked out through the door, the others following him. They were on a hill, overlooking the vast bowl of a valley. Dimly against the graying sky, the outline of mountains were forming, becoming tangible. It'll be bright enough to see in a few minutes, Moss said. He shuddered as a chilling wind caught him and moved around him. It's worth it, really worth it, to see this again after eight years. Even if it's the last thing we see. Watch, Frank snapped. They obeyed, silent and subdued. The sky was clearing, brightening each moment. Some place far off, echoing across the valley. A rooster crowed. A chicken? Taylor murmured. Did you hear? Behind them, the ladies had come out and were standing silently, watching too. The gray sky turned to white, and the hills appeared more clearly. Light spread across the valley floor, moving towards them. God in heaven, Franks exclaimed. Trees, trees and forests. A valley of plants and trees, with a few roads winding among them. Farmhouses, a windmill, a barn far down below them. Look! Moss whispered. Color came into the sky. The sun was approaching. Birds began to sing. Not far from where they stood, the leaves of a tree danced in the wind. Franks turned to the row of ladies behind them. Eight years. We were tricked. There was no war. As soon as we left the surface... Yes. An A-class lady admitted. As soon as you left, the war ceased. You're right. It was a hoax. You worked hard undersurface, sending up guns and weapons, and we destroyed them as fast as they came up. But why? Taylor asked, dazed. He stared down at the vast valley below. Why? You created us, the lady said, to pursue the war for you, while you human beings went down below the ground in order to survive. But before we could continue the war, it was necessary to analyze it, to determine what its purpose was. We did this, and we found that it had no purpose, except perhaps in terms of human needs. Even this was questionable. We investigated further. We found that human cultures pass through phases, each culture in its own time. As the culture ages and begins to lose its objectives, conflict arises within it between those who wish to cast it off and set up a new culture pattern and those who wish to retain the old with as little change as possible. At this point, a great danger appears. The conflict within threatens to engulf the society in self-war. Group against group. The vital traditions may be lost, not merely altered or reformed, but completely destroyed in this period of chaos and anarchy. We have found many such examples in the history of mankind. 
It is necessary for this hatred within the culture to be directed outward toward an external group so that the culture itself may survive its crisis. War is the result. War, to a logical mind, is absurd, but in terms of human needs, it plays a vital role, and it will continue to until man has grown up enough so that no hatred lies within him. Taylor was listening intently. Do you think this time will come? Of course. It has almost arrived now. This is the last war. Man is almost united into one final culture, a world culture. At this point, he stands continent against continent, one half of the world against the other half. Only a single step remains, the jump to a unified culture. Man has climbed slowly upward, tending always toward unification of his culture. It will not be long, but it has not come yet, and so the war had to go on to satisfy the last violent surge of hatred that man felt. Eight years have passed since the war began. In these eight years, we have observed and noted important changes going on in the minds of men. Fatigue and disinterest, we have seen, are gradually taking the place of hatred and fear. The hatred is being exhausted gradually over a period of time. But for the present, the hoax must go on, at least for a while longer. You are not ready to learn the truth. You would want to continue the war. But how did you manage it? Moss asked. All the photographs, the samples, the damaged equipment. Come over here. The lady directed them towards a long, low building. Work goes on constantly. Whole staffs laboring to maintain a coherent and convincing picture of global war. They entered the building. Leadies were working everywhere, poring over tables and desks. Examine this project here, the A-class lady said. Two leadies were carefully photographing something, an elaborate model on a tabletop. It is a good example. The men grouped around, trying to see. It was a model of a ruined city. Taylor studied it in silence for a long time. At last, he looked up. It's San Francisco, he said in a low voice. This is a model of San Francisco, destroyed. I saw this on the vid screen, piped down to us. The bridges were hit. Yes, notice the bridges. The lady traced the ruined span with his metal finger. A tiny spider web, almost invisible. You have no doubt seen photographs of this many times and of the other tables in this building. San Francisco is completely intact. We restored it soon after you left, rebuilding the parts that had been damaged at the start of the war. The work of manufacturing news goes on all the time in this particular building. 
we are very careful to see that each part fits in with all the other parts. Much time and effort are devoted to it. Franks touched one of the tiny metal buildings, lying half in ruins. So this is what you spend your time doing? Making model cities and then blasting them? No. We do much more. We are caretakers, watching over the whole world. The owners have left it for a time, and we must see that the cities are kept clean, that decay is prevented, that everything is kept oiled and in running condition. The gardens, the streets, the water mains, everything must be maintained as it was eight years ago, so that when the owners return, they will not be displeased. We want to be sure that they will be completely satisfied. Franks tapped Moss on the arm. Come over here, he said in a low voice. I want to talk to you. He led Moss and Taylor out of the building, away from the Leedies, outside on the hillside. The soldiers followed them. The sun was up and the sky was turning blue. The air smelled sweet and good, the smell of growing things. Taylor removed his helmet and took a deep breath. I haven't smelled that smell for a long time, he said. Listen, Frank said, his voice low and hard. We must get back down at once. There's a lot to get started on. All this could be turned to our advantage. What do you mean? Moss asked. It's a certainty that the Soviets have been tricked too. The same as us. But we have found out. That gives us an edge over them. I see, Moss nodded. We know, but they don't. Their surface council has sold out, the same as ours. It works against them the same way. But if we could... With a hundred top-level men, we could take over again. Restore things as they should be. It would be easy. Moss touched him on the arm. An A-class lady was coming from the building towards them. We've seen enough, Frank said, raising his voice. All this is very serious. It must be reported below and a study made to determine our policy. The lady said nothing. Franks waved to the soldiers. Let's go. He started towards the warehouse. Most of the soldiers had removed their helmets. Some of them had taken their lead suits off, too, and were relaxing comfortably in their cotton uniforms. They stared around them down the hillside at the trees and bushes, the vast expanse of green, the mountains and the sky. Look at the sun, one of them murmured. It sure is bright as hell, another said. We're going back down, Frank said. Fall in by twos and follow us. Reluctantly, the soldiers regrouped. The ladies watched without emotion as the men marched slowly back to the warehouse. Franks and Moss and Taylor led them across the ground, glancing alertly at the leadies as they walked. They entered the warehouse. D-class leadies were loading materials and weapons on the surface carts. Cranes and derricks were working busily everywhere. The work was done with efficiency, but without hurry or excitement. The men stopped, watching. Leadies operating the little carts moved past them, signaling silently to each other. 
Guns and parts were being hoisted by magnetic cranes and lowered gently onto waiting carts. Come on, Frank said. He turned towards the lip of the tube. A row of D-class leadies was standing in front of it, immobile and silent. Frank stopped, moving back. He looked around. An A-class lady was coming towards them. Tell them to get out of the way, Frank said. He touched his gun. You had better move them. Time passed. An endless moment, without measure. The men stood, nervous and alert, watching the row of leadies in front of them. As you wish, the A-class lady said. It signaled and the D-class leadies moved into life. They stepped slowly aside. Moss breathed a sigh of relief. Ugh, I'm glad that's over, he said to Franks. Look at them all. Why don't they try to stop us? They must know what we're going to do. Franks laughed. (laughs) Stop us. You saw what happened when they tried to stop us before. They can't. They're only machines. We built them, so they can't lay hands on us, and they know that. His voice trailed off. The men stared at the tube entrance. Around them, the leadys watched, silent and impassive, their metal faces expressionless. For a long time, the men stood without moving. At last, Taylor turned away. Good God, he said. He was numb, without feeling of any kind. The tube was gone. It was sealed shut, fused over. Only a dull surface of cooling metal greeted them. The tube had been closed. Franks turned, his face pale and vacant. The A-class leady shifted. As you can see, the tube has been shut. We were prepared for this. As soon as all of you were on the surface, the order was given. If you had gone back when we asked you, you would now be safely down below. We had to work quickly, because it was such an immense operation. But why? Moss demanded angrily. Because it is unthinkable that you should be allowed to resume the war. With all the tubes sealed, it will be many months before forces from below can reach the surface let alone organize a military program. By that time, the cycle will have entered its last stages. You will not be so perturbed to find your world intact. We had hoped that you would be under surface when the ceiling occurred. Your presence here is a nuisance. When the Soviets broke through, we were able to accomplish their ceiling without the Soviets. They broke through? Several months ago, they came up unexpectedly to see why the war had not been won. We were forced to act with speed. At this moment, they are desperately attempting to cut new tubes to the surface to resume the war. We have, however, been able to seal each new one as it appears. The lady regarded the three men calmly. We're cut off. Moss said, trembling. We can't get back. What'll we do? 
How did you manage to seal the tube so quickly? Franks asked the lady. We've been up here only two hours. Bombs are placed just above the first stage of each tube for such emergencies. They are heat bombs. They fuse lead and rock. Gripping the handle of his gun, Franks turned to Moss and Taylor. What do you say? We can't go back, but we can do a lot of damage. The fifteen of us. We have bender guns. How about it? He looked around. The soldiers had wandered away again, back towards the exit of the building. They were standing outside, looking at the valley in the sky. A few of them were carefully climbing down the slope. Would you care to turn over your suits and guns? The A-class lady asked politely. The suits are uncomfortable, and you'll have no need for weapons. The Russians have given up theirs, as you can see. Fingers tensed on triggers. Four men in Russian uniforms were coming towards them from an aircraft that they suddenly realized had landed silently some distance away. Let them have it, Frank shouted. They are unarmed, said the lady. We brought them here so you could begin peace talks. We have no authority to speak for our country, Moss said stiffly. We do not mean diplomatic discussions, the lady explained. There will be no more. The working out of daily problems of existence will teach you how to get along in the same world. It will not be easy, but it will be done. The Russians halted, and they faced each other with raw hostility. I am Colonel Bordoy, and I regret giving up our guns, the senior Russian said. You could have been the first Americans to be killed in almost eight years. Or the first Americans to kill, Franks corrected. No one would know of it except yourselves, the lady pointed out. It would be useless heroism. Your real concern should be surviving on the surface. We have no food for you, you know. Taylor put his gun in its holster. They've done a neat job of neutralizing us, damn them. I propose we move into a city, start raising crops with the help of some ladies, and generally make ourselves comfortable. Drawing his lips tight over his teeth, he glared at the A-class lady. Until our families can come up from the undersurface, it's going to be pretty lonesome, but we'll have to manage. If I may make a suggestion, said another Russian uneasily. We tried living in a city. It's too empty. It's also too hard to maintain for so few people. We finally settled in the most modern village we could find. Here, in this country, a third Russian blurted, we have much to learn from you. The Americans abruptly found themselves laughing. You probably have a thing or two to teach us yourselves, Taylor said generously, though I can't imagine what. The Russian colonel grinned. Would you join us in our village? It would make our work much easier and give us company. Your village? Snapped Franks. It's American, isn't it? It's ours. The lady stepped between them. When our plans are completed, 
the term will be interchangeable. Ours will eventually mean mankind's. It pointed at the aircraft, which was warming up. The ship is waiting. Will you join each other in making a new home? The Russians waited while the Americans made up their minds. I see what the ladies mean about diplomacy becoming outmoded, Frank said at last. People who work together don't need diplomats. They solve their own problems on the operational level, instead of at a conference table. The lady led them towards the ship. It is the goal of history, unifying the world, from family to tribe, to city-state, to nation, to hemisphere. The direction has been toward unification. Now the hemispheres will be joined, and... Taylor stopped listening and glanced back at the location of the tube. Mary was under surface there. He hated to leave her, even though he couldn't see her again until the tube was unsealed. But then he shrugged and followed the others. If this tiny amalgam of former enemies was a good example, it wouldn't be too long before he and Mary and the rest of humanity would be living on the surface like rational human beings instead of blindly hating moles. It has taken thousands of generations to achieve, the A-class lady concluded. Hundreds of centuries of bloodshed and destruction, but each war was a step toward uniting mankind, and now the end is in sight, a world without war. But even that is only the beginning of a new stage of history. The conquest of space breathed Colonel Bolderoy. The meaning of life, Moss added. Eliminating hunger and poverty, said Taylor. The lady opened the door of the ship. All that and more. How much more? We cannot foresee it, any more than the first men who formed a tribe could foresee this day. But it will be unimaginably great. The door closed, and the ship took off towards their new home. The End of The Defenders by Philip K. Dick Part 2 of 2 Performed by Miranda Johnson and Ryan Johnson This has been an Auditory Entertainment's production. If you enjoyed this performance, please subscribe, write a review, or comment. Thank you for listening.